Hey, science nerds. Welcome to Beyond the Abstract, a podcast where we discuss the coolest, cutting-edge, basic science research papers in a way that just about anyone can understand. Welcome back to episode 14 of Beyond the Abstract. The pandemic is still a thing, so of course our first real episode is going to be about COVID. She thought she could escape us, but no. To give you guys an update of COVID so far, so according to the COVID tracking project, on November 4th, the U.S. had for the first time over 100,000 cases of confirmed COVID in a single day and over a thousand deaths that day. And since that day, there's been over a hundred thousand cases every single day. That's crazy. Yeah. And unfortunately, we keep breaking records because the current record for most cases in one day is 240,000, which was recently in December, on December 17th. So we now have over 19 million cases and over 325,000 deaths. So really, we're not doing great. No. Unfortunately, hospitalizations continue to climb and deaths only began declining last week. Honestly, I feel like this really just indicates a failure as a country, as a government, it would contain a virus, and we have vaccines now, but we have no idea when they're going to become widely available for the general public. Yeah. That's probably our best hope right now to to beat this pandemic. Yeah, that seems like the best light at the end of the tunnel, but I mean, we don't know how, how long this tunnel is. We're not sure how quickly we can reach the vaccination rates needed to actually like contain the virus and provide enough immunity for everyone. So I guess cautiously optimistic is a good way to think about it but yeah we're still unsure about how well the vaccine will be rolled out at this point i'm like please just inject me with anything (laughs) like anything we're willing to take it all but it was pretty exciting when moderna and pfizer came out with their vaccines and they got approved and they showed that it was 95 percent effective yeah i don't want to underplay how awesome the production of the vaccine has been it's been done at an incredibly fast pace especially when you compare it to typical vaccine development. And that is really just goes to show how hard these researchers and people at Moderna and Pfizer have been working towards this vaccine to get it out so quickly. I think it's also the first mRNA vaccine ever. Which is crazy to have completely new technology and then confirm its safety, which has been done rigorously, all together at once is really impressive. And I know a lot of people say like, oh, it's a record we were able to develop this vaccine within a year. But we should also remember that mRNA vaccines have been studied for like over a decade. So this actually rests on the laurels of like a lot of people's research. And researchers who were doing this many years ago when people never thought this was a technology that could be used. Like some of these researchers were told that they were doubted their whole scientific career. So it's really cool to see their like scientific dedication pay off. Just a lesson in persistence, I guess. Yeah. So today we actually have a three-for-one special. We're going to be talking about three different COVID-related papers. A little triumvirate. It's like a Neapolitan ice cream sandwich of COVID. I'm the psychopath that only eats, like, the vanilla. 
Honestly, the other flavors don't slap that hard, so understandable. So our first paper is called Declining Prevalence of Antibody Positivity to SARS-CoV-2, a community study of 365,000 adults. This was done by the REACT study team led by Helen Ward and Paul Elliott at the Imperial College of London. It was put on MedArchive, which is a preprint server, so it hasn't been peer-reviewed, and it was put on there on October 27th of 2020. And this actually caused quite a stir in like the medical and scientific community because one of the big questions that this paper was trying to look at was how long does immunity to SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID, last? We know that like if we really want to beat this pandemic, we have to ensure that there's lasting immunity, immunity that lasts more than like a few months or even more than a year. We need to make sure that this immunity lasts so that people don't get infected after they either get the virus itself or after getting the vaccine. Yeah. And again, this was published back in October. So this was back before people were getting vaccinated, of course. And a lot of people were talking about depending on herd immunity meaning getting immunity from people who were infected and produced antibodies themselves, which would require long-lasting immunity. So this paper wanted to see, is this kind of immunity actually feasible? So they did this by looking at 365,000 adults in the UK, and they had either self-administered a test for IgG, which is a type of long-lasting antibody, And they administered a test for themselves three times over a period of three months. So this is from June to September to see if they had these antibodies. And what they saw was that these IgG antibodies actually declined over time in everyone. And the most interesting thing is it actually declined more in those who did not report a history of COVID. So these are people who likely had COVID but were asymptomatic versus those that had tested positive, so likely had some sort of symptom. This is a little bit concerning because, okay, your antibodies are declining. Does this mean that there's no long-lasting immunity for COVID? Does this mean you can be reinfected? And especially in the context of the fact that there have been documented cases of people reinfected with COVID, and the second time, they actually had even more severe disease for the first time. So if we're losing these antibodies and putting ourselves at risk for reinfection, this would be really bad news for our fight against COVID in this pandemic. The jury's kind of still out on what these results mean because on the other hand, compared to what Derek said, which means that we don't have long-lasting immunity, in every case of infection, your IgG naturally decreases over time. But when you're re-exposed to the virus, your body is able to produce more antibodies than your normal rate because it's seeing this virus and being like, okay, all hands on deck, let's make antibodies against the virus. So it's not completely disheartening, the results of these studies. And another thing to point out is that the antibody response from your natural infection might be different than the antibody response from getting vaccinated. So the vaccine studies have shown so far that there is a nice, robust antibody response and has been shown to be protective. So that's sort of the good news from this paper that seems a little bit disheartening. I think that's also why vaccine design is really interesting and important, 
both the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine require two different shots around three to four weeks in between. So it's kind of like the first shot is teaching your body how to fight the infection, and the second one is to strengthen that response so that if you really encounter the real virus, that your body knows exactly what to do. Yeah, giving a little boost to your immune system. The second part of this trifecta of COVID papers is titled Spike Mutation D614G Alters SARS-CoV-2 Fitness. And this study was led by the Shea Plante Weaver and She Groups at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, Texas, and it was published in Nature on October 26, 2020. Just to give you some context about this paper, we know that viruses can actually alter and mutate. We know that, for example, the flu does this a lot. And in some cases, they become even more dangerous. They spread more easily or they cause more severe disease. But not all mutations actually do this. Some mutations make a virus weaker. Some mutations really have no effect at all. It was noted that this specific mutation in SARS-CoV-2 might actually have an effect on how well the virus infects people. Even though SARS-CoV-2 has only been around for a year, there already have been a ton of different mutations noted that can affect how the virus spreads and how maybe actually even impact how effective a vaccine is. And now the D614G mutation in the spike protein is actually the dominant form of the virus. And you might remember from one of our earlier COVID episodes that the spike protein is actually what the virus uses to enter the cells. And changing a single amino acid can make a huge difference. We know that in diseases like beta thalassemia, in diseases like cystic fibrosis, a single amino acid change actually has a huge effect. So that's why people get especially nervous about mutations in this spike region. It's because this is one of the most important proteins for the virus and really affects its infectivity if it has changes in the spike protein. So we'll call these two different viruses the D-type virus and the G-type virus. And essentially what they showed was the G-type virus, which is now the more dominant type, was more infectious. They required fewer particles to infect cells, and they affected the upper respiratory tract better which is something that makes the virus more susceptible to transmission. One important thing to note was that even though the G-type was more infectious, it didn't actually change how severe the disease was. It only made the virus spread more easily. It didn't actually affect how severe COVID was in humans. One really important thing to note was that antibodies against the D-type, so the first type, could still neutralize the G-type. This suggests to us that vaccines against the D-type could actually still be effect against the G-type, which is a good thing. The spike protein is important because this is what the vaccines actually recognize and target. And this is what your antibodies that are made by your body recognize. Another reason people get fearful, in addition to the increased transmissibility, is because people worry that, oh, maybe this new virus won't be able to be recognized by the antibodies that are made by the vaccine. But people are optimistic that the vaccine will still be effective against this virus strain and new strains that continue to appear. So people like Fauci caution people to stay calm and not get too panicked about these new strains. 
And the vaccine team at the NIH is constantly making these new virus variants that pop up and making sure that the antibodies produced by the vaccine can still recognize the new virus strains. I feel like recently there's also been a lot of talk in the media about this new strain of the virus circulating in the UK and It's now been found in a bunch of other countries as well, including the U.S., and how this strain is much more infectious. But a lot of people are also freaking out, does this mean the vaccine isn't going to be effective? And the answer is, the vaccine will still probably be effective, Mm -hmm. and at least all the studies in cell culture show that it's still going to be effective. And this is because the way that the Pfizer-Moderna vaccines are made you actually make antibodies to a bunch of different parts in the spike protein. Just because one part changes a little, those other ones are still there and they can still fight off the virus. So really, we should be fine in terms of the effectiveness of the vaccine. In the future, like there will continue to be new strains that emerge and it'll probably be spread across the media. But I think we can be confident in this vaccine and it will continue to still work because of what Derek said. It can recognize many different types of strains. So that's reassuring. Our last paper is titled Measurement of SARS-CoV-2 RNA in Wastewater Tracks Community Infection Dynamics. And this was led by the Omer Group at Yale and published in Nature Biotechnology in September of this past year. It's kind of a funny title, right? Because, like, you're literally looking at virus in sewage. This is our second sewage paper that we talked about on the pod, too. We love sewage. As an aspiring GI doctor, passionate about sewage. Shitty papers for a shitty podcast, am I right? (laughs) Don't use that for your one-star review. (laughs) Why is this paper important? So far in this pandemic, how we've tracked COVID is through testing, and this is through individual testing. So we'll give a COVID test to a patient. They'll either come out positive or negative. And to be clear, we usually give these tests to patients who already have some sort of symptom. So there is a little bias in that sense. But we give them these tests, and they tell us whether they have COVID or not. Because we usually give them to symptomatic patients, we're probably missing a bunch more cases of people who are asymptomatic because those people usually don't show up for tests. That makes the virus even more difficult to track because these asymptomatic people are going around shedding virus and infecting other people. That's what's making this pandemic so hard to contain. The approach of this paper is instead of using saliva tests or nasal swab tests, they wanted to test for viral content actually in wastewater. So this would capture not only symptomatic people, but also asymptomatic people. And another great thing about this is that when they looked at sewage, it actually predicted trends in viral prevalence, how many people had the virus, faster than the test results. Because test results, there's always a little bit of the lag. You have to collect the sample, and then you have to like send it to the lab. It can take sometimes over a week to get those results back. And by then, the landscape of the virus has already changed. So what they saw was that when they looked at the virus in sewage, they could actually predict trends in the virus faster than individual tests. And They even correlated better with hospital admissions. So at least at a population level, using sewage to monitor the pandemic and to manage it might actually be a better strategy than just looking at individual tests alone. 
This is really cool for public health and population-based health research because it could help communities make decisions about lockdowns or restrictions based on these kinds of tests, which encapsulate the entire population better than maybe these tests that we're doing mainly on symptomatic patients. And this could be applied not only to this pandemic, but also other outbreaks as well. Access to testing is still actually a major issue. There are some communities that aren't able to get tests readily, or they can't get it for free. I remember I went to a clinic to get a test, and it cost me $35, which is, you know, not an insignificant amount of money. But the person at the clinic told me that with some people's insurance, they have to pay $150 to get a test, whereas other people get free testing and can get a test whenever they want which makes it hard to monitor in communities that don't have access to testing. So sewage is our friend, again. Everybody poops. (laughs) Amazing book. So that about wraps it up for this episode of Beyond the Abstract. We still know right now, besides the vaccine, the best way to fight the pandemic is social distancing, masks. That hasn't changed since the beginning. Maybe in the future we'll be able to do an episode about some of the effects we're seeing on vaccination. Hopefully we're going to see larger parts of the population and especially vulnerable people and frontline workers getting the vaccine. That's something to look forward to. One thing really important to note is that the vaccine has been shown to be really, really, really safe. Mm -hmm. I think something else I've seen in the media is that there are these people getting really severe allergic reactions, and now there are people who are scared to get the vaccine. We know that these people who had severe allergic reactions actually had a history of severe allergic reactions, so it's not entirely unexpected. These people all turned out completely fine. And I think it was like maybe three patients out of millions who have gotten the vaccine. So we know it is actually probably one of the safest vaccines like ever made. Yeah. On the whole, the side effects are pretty typical of what you would expect, which is like a sore arm. So very safe and effective. I'm most looking forward to taking my vaccine selfie. (laughs) With a cute little band-aid? Yeah. (laughs) Do they even give band-aids anymore? I don't think so. These coddled millennials wanting (laughs) band-aids. Silver spoon. (laughs) Let it bleed through your shirt. (laughs) And with that happy note, we'll see you next time. See ya.